Turn with me to 1 Peter, if you will. 1 Peter chapter 2. A couple things made me uh, go to this particular chapter. Those of you that pay attention to to uh, such things have probably somewhat familiar that currently the political system in our country is in a bit of an upheaval with the uh, with the attempt by some to uh, impeach our president and um, the um, goings on that surround that. It seems that I'm just interested as this whole thing is playing out that according to people that take polling and that sort of thing, it nobody has changed their mind about President Trump. Let's put it this way. It, it seems like Either you love the guy or you hate the guy, and no matter what the guy does, it doesn't change your opinion on him. It's just that that's just the way it's kind of playing out. Seems like, uh, yeah, his actions really, really matter very little as far as is how people feel about this person. And I guess I was uh, I was reminded that you know there was another man in history and probably more than one, but uh, there was another man in history that we all know very well that had a very similar experience for very different reasons, I must quickly add. But this man was either a person that you loved or you hated, and there was very few people that fell in between. He, he, was, a, he was a polarizing figure in the day in which he lived. And, uh, and you know who that is. That is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to this day, he continues to be a polarizing um, Person, and um, in First Peter here. Now going to to our text. Um, I don't know in, in our Sunday school books that we have here currently. This is the suggested memorization passage in inside the 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 cover of the of the back of the quarterly, and our family uh, memorized that particular passage this past quarter, and um, I was interested. How there's so much, so many of these verses in verses 1 through 12 are given to this, this stone. It's called it the stone. And either this stone is this precious stone that is a building stone, it's a cornerstone, and it's this wonderful piece of this beautiful edifice, or it's a stumbling block. And at other places, uh, it's referred to as this, is this rock that people stumble on and it grinds them to powder and, I mean, it's either one of the two. You either use this this person as a as a part of your life that is a building block, or it is a it is a a stumbling block. I'm going to read First Peter two one to twelve, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to read it actually out of the Amplified because I think it uh, it helps us to it brings out things maybe just a bit more clearly. You can follow along in your in your Bibles, and you'll, you'll be able to tell where I'm at as I'm reading here, but I'm going to read it out of the Amplified this morning. Verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 2. So be done with every trace of wickedness, depravity, and malignity, and all deceit and insincerity, pretense and hypocrisy, and grudges, and envy and jealousy, and slander and evil speaking of every kind. Like newborn babies, you should crave, thirst for, earnestly desire the pure, unadulterated spiritual milk, that ye may be nurtured and grow unto completed salvation, since you have already tasted the goodness and kindness of the Lord. Come to him then, to that living stone which men tried and threw away, 
but which is chosen and precious in God's sight. Come and as living stones be yourselves built into a spiritual house for a holy, dedicated, consecrated priesthood to offer up those spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable and well-pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. For thus it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a chosen, honored, precious, chief cornerstone, and he who believes in him, who adheres to, trusts in, and relies on him, should never be disappointed or be put to shame. To you, then, who believe, who adhere to, trust in, and rely on Jesus, he is precious. But for those who disbelieve, it is true, the very stone which the builders rejected has become the main cornerstone. And a stone that will cause stumbling and a rock that will give men offense. They stumble because they disobey and believe, disbelieve God's word, as those who reject him are destined and appointed to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a dedicated nation, God's own special purchased people, that you may show forth the wonderful deeds and display the virtues and perfections of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people at all, but now you are God's people. Once you were unpitied, but now you are pitied and have received mercy. Beloved, I implore you as sojourners, strangers, and exiles in this world to abstain from the sensual urges and evil desires and passions of the flesh and lower nature that war against the soul. Conduct yourselves proper, properly, that is, honorably, righteously, among the Gentiles, so that although they may slander you as evildoers, yet they may, by witnessing your good deeds, come to glorify God in the day of inspection, when God shall look upon you, wanderers, as a pastor and shepherd over his flock. And I'll quit reading there. I would just like to, uh, again, as I introduced, I would just like to look at this person, Jesus. Do you find him a precious stone or do you find him a rock of offense? He will end up being one of the two in each of our lives. Peter starts out, or I'm going to, I'm going to kind of break in here at verse six. He says, wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. And Peter's referring back to two verses in particular in, in the scripture. And the one is in Psalm 118.22 that reads like this. The stone which the builders refused is become the head of the, is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. There's also a verse in Isaiah 28.16 that goes like this. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone. A tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. And then there's also the, um, the, um, reference that Jesus gives when he walked the earth in Matthew 21, 42. He's having this conversation with the Pharisees. And they were, uh, they were having some issues with some of the things he was saying. And he said this to them. Did you not read in the, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing and marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and shall be given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on the stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. 
So let's just break this uh, this apart just a little bit. So what about this thing? Why does why is the um, the um, word picture given of laying in Zion a chief cornerstone? Well, um, we all probably know that in in the Bible times the word Zion was used interchangeably and synonymously with uh, with um, Jerusalem. And it was somewhat the spiritual reference to Jerusalem. The uh, temple was built on what was known as Mount Zion. And so um, that was kind of the pinnacle of, uh, of a Jewish person's uh, spiritual, uh, the spiritual events in his life. You know, there was those trips they made regularly to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion. And that's, that was kind of the capstone of his, of his spiritual experience. Now, it's interesting that um, what should have been, what should have been the, the display of godliness to the world, okay, in the Old Testament days, often ended up being the exact opposite. Uh, generally speaking, and it happened over and over again through, the, through Israel's existence, and you know this, that instead of them being this, this beautiful picture of what God can do with a nation on earth, they became this Example of how much influence the world exudes on the righteous people of God. And so it was actually, it kind of worked exactly the opposite. Rather than having a positive influence on the nations around them, it ended up more the nations around them had a negative influence upon them. And that was unfortunate. But, but what, what the scripture is saying here, or what God is saying, is that in the middle of Zion, which should have been the, the standard of righteousness, I'm going to put a standard of righteousness that every person must build upon if there's going to be any hope for that person to have a profitable life. It is a chief cornerstone. It's right there. It is the measurement of, a, of my standard of righteousness. Isaiah, in his, in his writing there in Isaiah 28, 16, which I referred to, he says, it will be a tried stone. In other words, this stone will have been proven to work. It's going to be a precious stone. It's going to be one that has value, and everybody will know that it has value. And it will be what he calls a sure foundation. This thing comes with a guarantee. It will work. And Jesus in Matthew, which I, which I again uh, read earlier, he, he alludes to the fact that this stone was him. And you know, there has never been a man in history that has made more of an impact on the world than Jesus. I mean, even if you, even if you refuse to admit that Jesus is the Son of God and he is the person that can change every man's life and he is the answer to every man's problem, even if you refuse to admit that, every time you change your calendar from one year to the next, you are, you are given, giving tacit assent that sometime back 2,000 some years ago, there was a man called Jesus that walked the face of the earth and that the world revolved or revolves around this man. He really does. Um, and um, the very fact that people go to the great lengths that they go to to discredit this man proves that he means something. There's something about this man 
that means something to everybody. Either you love them or you hate them. I like how it says in the Bible that when the fullness of time had come, God placed on earth, right in the middle of his people, the standard of true righteousness. I think also it's interesting that in in Luke 2, uh, when Jesus there is presented at the temple, and we remember how Simeon came out and he blessed this young child. And it says, it, and it puts it this way, he said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. In other words, what Simeon was saying there is this child will end up being the person that will either cause people to fall or it will cause them to rise again. And he will be a sign that will be spoken against. And how true that is. I mean, um, Jesus has been, was spoken against when he walked among men and he continues to be spoken against uh, even to this very day. Jesus had... Uh, a similar testimony in Matthew 10 when he says uh, to his disciples there in that occasion, he goes, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. In other words, again, a clear picture that Jesus was going to be this person that was going to, was going to, if you accepted him, very likely this person would end up being a source of contention between you and the people that were closest to you. And that's unfortunate that it turns out that way, but many times it does. All right, so I would like to just um, look at particularly why the Jews found Jesus so offensive. And I'm going to do a bit of reading here to, um, as we d- try to discover this. Turn with me to Matthew 15. Just going to read three different passages that I think um, somewhat help us to, to clarify why the Jews so intensely um, disliked Jesus. And, and, and he became such a stone of stumbling for these people. In Matthew 15, I'm going to start at verse 1. Then came to Jesus, then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees which were of Jerusalem saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curses father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever say, whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or mother, he shall be free. Thus you have made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the multitude and said to them, Hear and understand. 
Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Then came his disciples and said to him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? And he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. Jesus said, Are you also without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draught? But those things which proceed out of the mouth which come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. Jesus clearly points out a problem that these these people had. They had developed traditions over the years that while they weren't necessarily evil and probably all probably most, if not all, of these traditions had started as as a very good, with very good intention. Let's put it that way, very good intention. What had happened over the, over the years that they had begun to guard and, and the, these works that they had, these traditions that they had, began to be mixed up and the traditions began to be the principle of the matter rather than the application of a principle, okay? Basically, it was, a, it was a largely a misplaced focus. I mean, indeed, there is really nothing wrong with washing your hands before you eat. That's, that's a good idea. And the tradition had started because of, um, well, I actually, I, I had it explained to me already, and I didn't take the time to research it whenever I... Um, when I was preparing for this, but as I recall the tradition, you know, there was much washing and so on happened in the, in the temple, um, ceremonies and so on. And, um, if, if I remember right, I think there was even some, uh, some direction given as far as washing, um, just in daily living. If you would read through Numbers, Deuteronomy, that sort of thing. And so these things, it, it's not like this was a bad idea. But what had happened is um, that became the principal thing, and Jesus clearly points out that you know they had taken tradition, which he he points out here in verses four, five, six, and seven, and they had in, they had actually through their tradition had had put some of the clear teaching of God um, to bed by their tradition. They had disregarded clear teaching, nullified it by their tradition. That, 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 it, it was it was a misplaced focus. That's, that's what it was. This this was a problem, and Jesus comes along and he knows this and he exposes it and he exposes it publicly. Now you got to hate that when somebody exposes you publicly, don't you? So I mean, rather than accepting that um, that reprimand and and letting it sink down into their ears, they just hated it. He became a stone of stumbling to them. Let's turn to John six now.
again, this is a long discourse here that, that Jesus had. It all started out um, with a discussion on bread and so on. And I'm just going to read verses 51 through 69. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and... And I live by the Father, so is he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, does this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, and the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who, should, who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, therefore, I say unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time, many of the disciples went back and walked no more with them. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Again, um, there's much we could we could uh, speak about here in this particular chapter, but just to put it condense it down into the core problem, Jesus through this discourse was making it very clear that there was one way to the Father, and that was through Him. And um, in verse 61, this was even getting to be a problem with the disciples, and Jesus turned to them and said, "Does that offend you too?" And uh, it's clear there from uh, verse 66 that many people found this too much. And it said from that point on, many people chose not to walk with Jesus because of this offense that, um, that he would suggest that uh, he was indeed the way to God. He was the living bread. He was the way of life. He was the way of eternal life. And that was just too much for these people. Lastly, turn to 1 Corinthians 1. This, Paul here is, is speaking about um, reasons why people find Jesus a stumbling block. We're going to read just a few verses of 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to start at verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 
For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see our calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised God hath chosen, yea, the things which are not to bring to not things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Again, just to put that reading in a very succinct way, the gospel is simply too simple for some people. It just isn't sophisticated enough. And it becomes a stone of stumbling. And uh, the simple, true gospel, um, Paul says the, the Jews required a sign that it was the case. And you remember they did that many times. And uh, he said the, uh, the Gentiles seek after um, uh, other things. How does he put that? The Greeks um, seek after wisdom, not, uh, just not sophisticated enough. All right, let's turn to one more scripture. Romans chapter 9. We're going to get to the crux of what the problem really was that, uh, that became the, the, the core issue of, uh, of this stumbling around that the, the Jews found Jesus to be. Romans chapter 9 in verse 30, and we're going to read through uh, a few verses into chapter 10. What shall we say then? that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, or we would maybe say why, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is, is that they may be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness. Now pay attention to that. That was the key problem. Going about to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And here, here is what that is. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For, from, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, 
and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. The, the, the bottom line is simply this. And as I pointed out, it's in chapter 10 and verse 3. The Jews had unwittingly imposed on themselves a system of righteousness that had elevated this long list of activities that, as I said before, may have been right and good. They became the standard by which they believed they could attain favor with God. And at the very same time they were doing that, they were harboring very evil attitudes and motives in their heart. Then along comes Christ and he exposes them for what they were, and they could not stand those cold, hard facts. You know, any attempt at creating a system of righteousness that is good with outward conformity to a religious code but has no emphasis on heart change is setting our lives up for a stumble. And the final result, where we will be ground ground to powder, as Jesus puts it, is a futile and an ultimate fatal activity. This is really what has been the instigation of any revival movement that you have seen throughout history. It is when when the institutions of the day had very little to offer anymore except outward conformity. That was it. That was the end of it. There was no... There was no emphasis or even teaching on any kind of a heart change. It was all about conforming to a particular code. You know, this seems to be a particular problem among very traditional denominations, and it's for sure a problem with quasi-Christian cults that are around. And this is truly the system that is used for any false religion. There's certain rituals, there's certain things, I do it this way, and once I've conformed to this particular code, it's all good. When we all know that any sinner, anybody could do these things, the, the, the standard is never elevated any higher than what any average person could do. You know, there's always going to be this potential possibility that when Christians make a good effort to make their Christianity practical, that at some point things can flip, and it's the practical Christianity that becomes more important than the inner heart change. And that does not mean that we should not live out our Christianity practical. It just means that people cannot live long in a state of hypocrisy. Okay, And so whenever... The outward becomes the, the, the part that is the most important to the detriment of the inner. That can, that tension cannot last long. One or the other is going to have to give. And so either we're going to be happy just to live outwardly righteously and be full of dead men's bones, or we're going to have to clean up the inside to make the outside doable and livable and uh, acceptable. A man cannot live with himself in a hypocritical stage. You know, it's interesting to me that in Matthew 23, Jesus does not necessarily condemn the outward expression of the Pharisees' religion. And I'm going to read to you what he says. Then Jesus said to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore, whatsoever they bid you, observe. That observe and do. 
but do not after their works, for they say and do not. All right, so, and then if you remember that chapter goes on, and time after time Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and he just exposes their their hypocrisy. But Jesus said, I don't really have a problem with what they're doing. I have a real problem with the motive. That's what I have a problem with. So this was a problem for the Jews. This is why the Jews found Jesus a stumbling block. Let's take this just a little bit further. And I think I think in uh, in our reading here in First Peter, some of this is brought out. Maybe not. Um, maybe maybe somewhat more in a veiled way. But as I thought through that, I'm like, you know, we can create systems of righteousness that aren't exactly like. The Jews here, their system of righteousness was this long list of things we're going to do, and that's going to make us righteous. And inwardly, we have no change. We are not seeking this by faith. This is just this code of, of righteousness that we have uh, we have concocted. And no matter how good it is, uh, the filthiness of their hearts still existed. What are some other systems of righteousness that perhaps we can uh, we can grapple with today? And I'm going to bump through just uh, three or four here real quickly. The, the, fir- the first one that becomes uh, very, very obvious is because of this possibility of being full of, of dead men's bones and yet living in an outward conformity to righteousness, you look righteous, but inside you're just a filthy person. There's this knee-jerk reaction that we can get to that. And that is that the outward really means nothing, and it's all about the inward. So in other words, you know, you hear this thing, you can't judge a, a, a book by its cover and all this, and, and, you, and it sounds good, and, 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 and there, is a, there is some logic to that. It's not like that's completely off base. But, but what this has wound up being, as you, as you look at it, as, as it has evolved through the last, um, well, since since Christianity began, we, what we kind of have ended up with is this idea that it is a misunderstanding of how grace is applied to the life of a believer. We don't have the time, and it's beyond the scope of this talk this morning, to go through the New Testament and systematically point out how many times Jesus, in his, when he walked the earth, and the apostles, when they taught through the uh, through their letters here, pointed out that your walk has to reflect the inner change. It has to. Uh, here, right here in this very chapter, in uh, in verse eleven, uh, dearly, dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. Why? Because it wars against the soul. Peter in uh, in verse 16 then goes on saying that there's this um, possibility that we could use our liberty in Jesus as a cloak of maliciousness or as a pretext or a, an excuse for wickedness. Jude has something very, very similar to say. He says, um, there are men that are crept in and turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness or unholy living. And he said, by doing this, they deny the Lord the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And Titus probably puts it the, the clearest when he says in uh, Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, 
and godly in this present world. These teachings are very, very obvious that there has to be some expression of Christianity that people can look at, that they can see our good works and glorify God, which is in heaven. And largely, modern Christianity has uh, has rejected that concept. The idea that holy living in a very practical way is not required by a Christian is a counterfeit system of righteousness. And I believe it is as evil in the eyes of God as the exact opposite of that particular concept. And I'm afraid sometimes we're willing to flirt with that concept. And we get this idea that it's all about the inner. And it has nothing to do with the way we live that out. And I want to just caution us to be very careful about that concept. Another very, very closely related um, system of righteousness that is set up, and this this one is is one that um, it, it ties in so closely with the last one I talked about. But it's it's the it's the idea that the Bible has to be uh, has to be brought up with the times. So, in other words, what was taught back in the Old Testament, or I should say the New Testament times here, early church days, really does not apply anymore. It's a very, very faulty concept, and we can see where where it leads. Uh, case in point, I was just reading recently a, a letter that a, a Mennonite, albeit a very liberal Mennonite, wrote, explaining how that the acceptance of homosexuality in the church is no different than the acceptance of the uncircumcised into the church back in the book of Acts. And that we're just bringing that concept and we're, we're moving it into the 21st century. And it's the same thing. Folks, that, that is twisting and resting the scriptures. That's not the case. God nowhere in the New Testament um, or in the Old Testament condones such living. And for us to think that we can bring the Bible into our times and that certain things that didn't matter then matter now or mattered then don't matter now, very, very, very false system of righteousness that um, that is being touted in our day. And let's be careful we don't get uh, we don't get wrapped up in that. Another one that uh, hopefully hopefully we don't uh, wrestle with, but it is certainly something that that we hear uh, practically everywhere. And that is the system of righteousness that there are many ways to God. Um, ultimately, all religions serve the same God. There's many ways to God. There's not one way. And to think that there is, is a, uh, is a um, yeah, it, it's something that, that, that is a prideful way of thinking. And again, I'm just going to quote the words of Jesus, very familiar words in John 14. Jesus saith unto him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Acts 4, Neither is any is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And I could go on and on um, with many different verses. You know, let's just boil it down. God was very kind to us whenever he created us, He watched us fall. He promised us a Savior. He sent that Savior. 
That Savior died and that Savior rose again and that Savior promised us power to live above sin. Folks, that's the one way. There is, there is no other way for a person to deal with the sin in his life other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're not willing to accept that, it becomes a stumbling block. Jesus becomes a stumbling block to us rather than the, the cornerstone that he should be. The last one I'm just going to briefly touch. And, um, this is the, this is the, counterfeit righteousness that says, you know, I can go it alone. In the Christian life, I can do it all by myself. And there's been many, many people have bought into that system of righteousness. Many people out there that would say, I am a Christian, but no, I do not identify with the church. I don't do that. And when you press that further, you'll get this idea that you know, hey, God's everywhere. He's in the trees. He's whatever. And, and, uh, you, you, you know the gamut. God, God is everywhere. And so I don't need to enter a church building. And the church is so, has been so disappointing. You know, who would want to be a part of it? You know, there's many and varied excuses that, that are given for that. You know, let's just turn to it. Ephesians 2. I, there's just no scripture that brings it out any clearer, I don't think, than the book of Ephesians. But in Ephesians 2, and I'm just going to read, uh, starting at chapter, or I'm sorry, verse 18. What Paul is actually talking about here is how that, how that Jesus had, had broken down this wall of partition and he had brought together the uncircumcised and the circumcised. And he says in verse 18, he says, For through him, Jesus, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. This has a lot of uh, similar languages uh, uh, Peter had there, doesn't it? And you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Again, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. And I think verse 22 says it all. In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Folks, there is no better expression of God. There is no better expression of the Spirit than in the collective body. When we're saved, we do not get a different personality necessarily. We're still the people who we are. We still have our own life experiences. We still have um, our besetting sins that perhaps are particular to us. We have our gifts. We have all these varying things. And we have the promise that the Spirit of God dwells in each one of us. And when we can follow the pattern that Christ so clearly laid out through the apostles, that this collective group comes together and they capitalize on their gifts, they have a place to... Uh, practice forgiveness, as we talked about in today's Sunday School lesson. That is where the Spirit of God finds its finest expression. That is where we become the most balanced. That's where we... That, that's where the kingdom of God is advanced, when people can do that. And yet, I think even sometimes we struggle... With, with, with this idea that if the church does not serve me, 
the way I believe it should, but I'm done with it. It has to serve me. That's a very, very prideful uh, thought process that I am the standard. And unless the church, the collective body, uh, measures up to what I believe my, the, stand, the gold standard is, then I'm going to discredit the church rather than to say, you know what, there might be something wrong with me. There might be something I, I should be adjusting in my life. Well, we've looked at the different ways that people stumble and fall at this, uh, at this stone. But you know, the exact opposite is, is, is just as true. What if we, what if we make our inside and our outside match? What if our inside is holy and our outside expresses that? What if we gladly and willingly and happily obey the commands that Jesus gives to us? And uh, we, we understand that what was good in A.D. 200 is still good in A.D. 2000. What if we understand that Jesus is all, the only way to God? What if we understand that when we joyfully embrace the church and we, we love the church and we, we are behind it and we accept this church, this body as Jesus' bride, if we can do those things, this stone that is called millions to stumble will suddenly become that precious chief cornerstone for a very fine edifice that God wishes to build.